Good morning again, everyone. It's good to be with you this morning. If you want to open up with me in your copy of Scripture to John chapter 4, we'll be looking to this great passage this morning as we conclude our series through the attributes of God. If you've stuck with us through this whole time, hopefully this series has been beneficial and um, encouraging. I know it's been encouraging to me um, as we've studied and sought to see more of the God who has revealed himself in his word. And hopefully it's given us a clearer vision of of who God is, a, a bigger picture of the God who has revealed himself in his word. Hopefully it's deepened our communion and fellowship with God, that as we seek to know God more truly, that we can worship Him more rightly. Hopefully it's increased our worship of God, maybe in some senses increasing our awe of who God is, this God that we, as as we saw in the beginning, that we cannot comprehend, we cannot wrap our minds around, and yet He's pleased to reveal Himself to us in His Word. And we come now to our final sermon in this series as we look to the spirituality of God, the spirituality of God. Now, when we refer to this spirituality of God, we don't mean as opposed to, as we might hear in our day, religious, right? I'm not religious, I'm just spiritual, okay? That's not what we're talking about. When we, t- when we talk about the spirituality of God as some sort of new age, oh, well, I'm just spiritual, nor are we referring to this spirituality as this like search for the meaning of life or this harmony with the universe, right? This is how we've heard the word spirituality used before and most commonly in our day. But this word spirituality, referring to the spirituality of God, is actually a much older way of speaking about God as spirit. God as spirit. Having no body who is invisible without body parts or passions. The Puritan Stephen Charnock famously wrote two discourses on the spirituality of God and the spirituality of our worship. And while this doctrine of God being spirit might seem very straightforward on the surface, I think that more often than not, there's a lot of confusion about this. Uh, A couple years back, I was meeting with some, some local pastors in town And when we came to this doctrine, this confession that God is spirit, I came to find out that one of the pastors actually believed that God was an old man in the sky with a gray beard. He kind of pictured him as Michelangelo depicted him in 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 that great painting. Or maybe you've tried to discuss this with your kids. You've gone through the catechism, right? And it says, what is God? God is a spirit and does not have a body. I actually heard one kid <laughs> one time say to that catechism question, is he just a floating head? What do you mean he doesn't have a body, right? There was a misunderstanding about what the catechism was trying to get across. And so I think that while this might seem straightforward on the surface, there's often a lot of confusion in our day about the spirituality of God. What does it mean that God is spirit? And this doctrine actually affects and has a great practical application as we look forward to how it affects our view of worship. And so what we're going to see today in our passage this morning is that God is indeed spirit. God does not have a body. He is invisible and immaterial. And this is his very nature. And yet, in the person of Christ, 
And in the incarnation, He has taken to Himself our nature, both body and soul, for the purposes of saving and redeeming us. And this spirituality of God is indeed the foundation of our spiritual worship of Him and our comfortable dependence upon Him. And so we're going to read this morning from maybe the most preeminent passage about this in John chapter 4, verse 24. We come to this passage where Jesus is speaking to this Samaritan woman at the well. And if you're familiar with the story, John tells us at the beginning that Jews did not have any dealings with Samaritans. And so this this meeting of Jesus and the Samaritan woman is already... um, is baked with this tension between the Jews and the Samaritans. The Samaritans were the people that were formerly a part of the people of Israel, but had apostatized, had syncretized their worship. And so this woman, after being confronted about her sin, tries to change the topic with Jesus and asks him, of all things, a question about worship. A question about worship, about which mountain should people worship at? Should they worship at the mountain in Samaria or Mount Zion in Jerusalem? And Jesus's answer to her is neither. And he tells her that a time is coming when the people of God will worship in spirit and in truth. So I'm going to read our passage this morning. I'll pray for us, and then we will look to God's word. I'll begin this morning reading at verse 19. This is the word of the Lord. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for, again, who you are. As we've sought to understand more of who you are, confessing and declaring who you have revealed yourself to be, we, we confess that we, we cannot comprehend you. We cannot wrap our minds around your infinite glory and splendor, but we thank you and praise you that you have revealed yourself to us in your word and in your works and most fully in the person and work of your son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we pray this morning that as we consider these things, that you would open the minds of our hearts, that you would enlighten us, that you would shine the light of the glory of Christ into our very hearts this morning, that as we consider and contemplate these things, we would come to find our hope and assurance in you and in you alone. And we pray all these things in his name. Amen. 
Amen. Well, we're going to consider three things this morning. First, we'll look at the spirituality of God. What does it mean that God is spirit? How does Scripture speak about these things? Secondly, we'll look at the image of the invisible God. And thirdly and finally, we'll look at the foundation of our worship. We'll look first at the spirituality of God. What do we mean when we say that God is spiritual? Well, we... We have a definition that didn't make its way onto the handout this morning, but when we say that God is spiritual or the spirituality of God, what we're saying is that God is a spirit and does not have a body. He is invisible, incorporeal, and immaterial. A most pure spirit who alone is worthy of our spiritual Worship That as we said before, as the Belgic Confession said, that our God is a single, simple, and spiritual being. He is single. There is only one true and living God. He is simple. He's not composed of parts. And the Confession says that He is a spiritual being. And this can be reasoned in many ways from all the other things that we've looked at as we've gone through this series, that our God must be spirit because he is the first and absolute being. He is independent and of himself. He is simple and uncomposed. He is infinite, immutable, and incorruptible, most perfect and most good. This is our God. And so our God must be spirit. Now, we often refer to God personally as spirit when we refer to the third person of God, the Holy Spirit, right? Many of us are familiar with referring to God personally as spirit when we refer to the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. But when we're speaking here, we're speaking about God essentially or absolutely when we are speaking of the Godhead as spirit. We are speaking of God as spirit, and that is what our Lord does here in John 4, 24. He declares that God is absolutely spirit. He says in John 4, 24, God is spirit, or some translations say God is a spirit, that our Lord here declares what God is, essentially, what he is in his very nature, that God is is spirit. He is invisible. He is incorporeal and immaterial. We confess this morning in our confession of faith that our God is a most pure spirit. He is invisible without body parts or passions. And so we're going to look at three sub points this morning. We're going to look at what does it mean that God is a most pure spirit? What does it mean that God is without a body? And what does it mean that God is invisible? So we'll consider first that God is a most pure spirit. God is a pure spiritual being. This is kind of an odd way for us to talk about God, I think. We don't, we don't refer to God in this way a lot. But what we, what we say when God is a most pure spirit is we're saying he's not in a class of spirits. He's not the highest in a class of spirits. He's not in a genus among spirits like angels are, who are created spirits. He's not in a class of spirits as our human souls are called in Scripture spirits, right? Our souls are immaterial. They're invisible. But God is spirit of himself. God is spirit of himself. He is uncreated. He is 
uncomposed. He is eternal and infinite. Angels are not that. Human souls are not that. God alone is uncreated and uncomposed. He is from none and of none. He is a most pure being. Stephen Charnock said it like this. I I thought it was kind of helpful. It's kind of a funny way of saying it. But he said, God is a most spiritual spirit. (laughs) He's the most spiritual spirit. He said, more spiritual than all angels and all souls, he exceeds all. Another said it like this, angels are spirits and the souls of men are spirits, but God is a spirit by a kind of excellence above all spirits which is why Scripture can refer to him in the book of Hebrews as the Father of spirits. He alone is uncreated. Every other spirit is only a spirit by analogy, a created spirit. This is what it means that God is a most pure spirit. But secondly, what we say when God is spirit is we're also confessing that God is without a body. God is not an old man in the sky with a gray beard. God is not a man in the toga as depicted by Michelangelo. What is God? The children's catechism tells us God is spirit and does not have a body, right? Our kids know this. Hopefully they confess this. But what does this mean? That God is immaterial, He's not made up of matter and atoms. He's incorporeal, meaning he does not have a physical body. But this might seem strange to us, or maybe this is new for us, because so many places in Scripture speak of God as if he has body parts, as if he has human body parts. They seek to imply, it seems to imply or indicate that God has a body, right? Exodus chapter 6 describes God leading the people of Israel out of bondage in Egypt, and it says that with a strong hand the Lord delivered the people from Egypt, right? Exodus 31 says that the Ten Commandments were inscribed by the finger of God, Genesis chapter 3 says that God was walking with Adam and Eve in the garden, right? Does God have feet? Does God have fingers? Does God have human hands? Even the Psalms go on. In Psalm 57, David declares that he will take refuge in the shadow of God's wings. Even in our confession of, or not our confession, our call to worship this morning, says that in his hands are the depths of the sea. Does God have hands? Does God have wings? Does God walk in the garden? And the answer is no. As we've gone through this series, we've seen that these are all language of metaphor or analogy. The fancy word is anthropomorphism. (laughs) If you want to impress someone. Anthropomorphism, right? Attributing human features to God, not literally, but figuratively, right? God's strong hand is referring to his almighty power and strength to save the people of Israel. The shadow of God's wing is not a feathery object that extends from God. Rather, it is his fatherly care and protection of his people. And so just as we saw this language refer to this These passages in Scripture which seem to imply God changes his mind or regrets something or God burns with anger and passion. 
These are all metaphorical language. And so here it is with God who is without body. But thirdly, we see that God is invisible. God is invisible. He cannot be seen. In our passage of Scripture last week, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 17, Paul says that God is immortal, invisible. As we sang this morning, God only wise, in light inaccessible, hid from our eyes. John chapter 1 says, No one has seen God at any time. No one has seen God at any time. God's essence cannot be comprehended or seen. And even in the Old Testament, when God was pleased to reveal Himself, whether to Moses or the prophets, it was not God's essence that they saw in the, in the burning bush, in the pillar of fire and smoke, in the Shekinah glory, in the temple, but rather a temporary created manifestation of God's glory. A temporary created manifestation of God's glory. Think about the burning bush, right? That was a temporary thing. It was not permanent. It was a created thing. It was not uncreated. It was a created creaturely thing. And it was a manifestation, a revealing of God and His glory, whether in the burning bush or the pillar of smoke and fire. This is how God revealed Himself through these temporary created means. And maybe most pointedly, our minds go to Exodus chapter 33, where Moses says to God, show me your glory, right? He calls out to God on the mountain, show me your glory. And the Lord says in verse 19 of chapter 33 that I will make all my goodness pass before you. But he goes on to say, but you cannot see my face. You cannot see the fullness of my glory. And the reason that he gives is for man cannot see me and live. Man cannot see me and live. And so God takes Moses, he hides him in the rock that is cleft in two, that his glory might pass by, and that Moses might see his back, but not his face. 1 Timothy 6 16 says that God dwells in light, which no man can approach unto. Even the holy angels, the most holy angels who day and night pour forth speech and praise to our God must hide their faces from His glory and His splendor as we see in Isaiah 6 that our God is invisible. He does not have a body and He is a most pure spirit. And while this is good news for us and this is clearly what Scripture teaches, I think as we hear and, and think about this doctrine of the spirituality of God, it can leave us to feel a little bit discouraged, right? If we cannot see God, how can we know Him at all? If God is invisible, how can we see Him in a true and right sense? If God does not have a body, how are we to conceive or think of Him? 
But the answer to those questions is that God has been pleased to reveal Himself to us in His Word and in His works, and nowhere does He reveal Himself or make Himself known more fully or more clearly than in the incarnation of His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. God taking to Himself a body. (laughs) This, brothers and sisters, is the mystery and the glory of the incarnation. In those four simple words in John's Gospel, the Word became flesh. That leads us to our second point this morning, the image of the invisible God. The image of the invisible God. This is the wonder of the Son assuming our humanity, the, the profound nature of the incarnation, similar to what we said last week, In the incarnation, the immaterial God takes to himself a material body. The invisible Son assumes a visible human nature. The God who is without body and a most pure spirit takes to himself a physical body and human spirit. Not by giving up his spirituality or his invisibility, but by manifesting to us his people, his goodness and love in the fullness of time. This is the glory and the wonder of the incarnation that we can say with confidence, Christ truly is Emmanuel, God with us. He truly is Emmanuel, God with us. The writer to the Hebrews in the first chapter says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son. He goes on to say that He, the Son, is the radiance of of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. That God has spoken to us fully and finally in His Son because He is God. Colossians chapter 1, verse 15 says that He, that is Christ, is the image of the invisible God. He is the image of of the invisible God, not because Jesus is a physical picture of what God looks like, right? Isaiah tells us in chapter 53 that Christ had no glory or majesty that we should look upon him. Christ was not this glowing human that walked around the earth. So Jesus is not a physical picture of what God looks like, but rather because Jesus is the Son of God incarnate, in whom the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, He has the full divine essence of God and is able to reveal to us the One who is invisible. (laughs) He reveals to us the One who is invisible, making known to us the One who cannot be seen. John chapter 1, verse 18 says it like this, We we quoted a little bit of it this morning, but he goes on in verse 18. He says, no one has ever seen God. But then he says this, but the only begotten son 
who is in the bosom of the Father, He has made Him known. (laughs) He has revealed Him. He has exegeted Him. He has explained Him that what's happening in the incarnation is the invisible, immaterial, and eternal Son of God reveals to us the immaterial and invisible God who is Spirit. The invisible God revealed Himself to us in His plan of redemption for sinners in the fullness of time in the person and the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. As we said, not by giving up His spirituality or His invisibility, but by manifesting to us His infinite and eternal love for us. That in the person of Christ, He is the rock of ages that was cleft for us. That in His death... He dies a bodily death for us. He takes on a body so that His body might be crucified for us. That by being hidden in Him, the rock of ages that was cleft for us, by being united to Him, not only in His life, but also in His death, the fullness of God's glory and goodness might pass before us And instead of death coming to us, we receive life and blessed immortality. That God is pleased to reveal to us in the person of Christ His plan of eternal salvation. That Christ perfectly reveals the invisible God. We saw in John chapter 14, verse 8 through 9, Philip who is confused about this, says to Jesus in the upper room, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Just give me a physical vision of God. Give me a physical picture of who God is. Our fears will be subsided. That will be sufficient for us. But what does Jesus tell him? Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me? Whoever has seen me, has seen the Father. Not because the Father and the Son are the same person, but because they share the same divine essence. To see Christ for who He truly is, is to see God. To behold Christ with the eyes of faith is to behold the true God. To know Christ and be known by Him is to know the invisible God. To see the glory of Christ is to see something far greater than what Moses saw on the mountain. God has spoken to us, brothers and sisters, fully and finally in His Son, who is the image of the invisible God, revealing to us His eternal plan of redemption. But what's so amazing is that we see in our passage this morning that because of the coming of Christ in the new covenant, the shadows of the old have passed away and the substance has fully and finally come. The physical has given way to the spiritual. And that brings us to our third and final point this morning, the foundation of our worship. The foundation of our worship. We see in our passage that God's spirituality, the fact that God is spirit in His very essence, is the very foundation 
of our spiritual worship of Him in the new covenant. That our worship is spiritual because God is spirit, right? Notice the context of John 4, 24. It's a discussion about worship. It's a discussion about worship. The woman at the well asked Jesus a question about worship. Where should we worship? On the mountain in Samaria or in Mount Zion in Jerusalem at the temple, right? And as a non-Jew, right, as a Samaritan, this would have been a hotly debated topic, a hotly debated question. And Jesus' answer to her is neither. Not on this mountain, nor on the mountain in Jerusalem. But he says, a time is coming and is now here when worship at both places will come to an end. He says in verse 23, the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. That the old way of worshiping God through the carnal and physical sacrifices, the earthly temple and the physical priest, the types and shadows of the old covenant was coming to an end. It was ceasing. And that the new way of worshiping God is being inaugurated in the new covenant. And the question you would ask is, why? Why is this happening? And Jesus tells us in verse 24, why? Because God is Spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. The reason why is because of the spirituality of God. Stephen Charnock said, the nature of God as Spirit is the foundation of our spiritual worship. And this, brothers and sisters, is the glory of new covenant worship. No longer would God's people gather at a physical temple or a physical mountain with animal sacrifices and earthly priests. But now in Christ as the true temple, the true sacrificial lamb and heavenly high priest, God's people can worship Him in spirit and in truth. Because God is spirit, true worship must be spiritual. Charnock will go on to say this, that the spirituality of God was the foundation of the change from the Jewish carnal worship to a more spiritual worship in the new covenant. That even though true worship has always been and will always be in spirit and in truth, even for Old Testament saints, now in Christ there has been a change. In the new covenant, the shadow has given way to the substance. The physical has given way to the spiritual. The earthly and the visible has given way to the heavenly and the invisible. That in the new covenant, true worship of God is not based on physical location, but spiritual relation to God. It's not by being born into the right family, but as John says in chapter 1, by being born of God. Not by birth, but by new birth by the Spirit. No longer a people according to the flesh, but a people according to faith. Born again by the Spirit, 
worshiping in spirit and in truth, as John says in John chapter 3, able to see the kingdom of God. And so this is what makes this so amazing and wonderful to think about. And this is all true because God is spirit. True worship must be spiritual because God is spirit. We can think of it like this. Just as we must worship God in truth because God is truth, so also we must worship God with our very spirit because God is spirit. And Jesus tells us that these are those whom the Father is seeking to worship Him, those that worship in spirit and in truth. And so many ways, this leads us right to our application this morning. The first thing that we need to see as we contemplate and think about the spirituality of God is this, the necessity of spiritual worship, the necessity of spiritual worship. Worship, that this might be one of the biggest and the most important questions that we think about. Worship is certainly one of the most important things that we do as image bearers. And so the questions that come to our mind is if God is spirit, how then should we worship him? How should we as creatures worship the one who is uncreated and immaterial? How are we to come before the one whom we cannot see and who cannot be pictured? we see in our passage the absolute necessity of our spiritual worship, our worshiping by faith, not in external forms, but in spirit and in truth. We could say in the very heart. As we read this morning in Psalm 51, David cries out to God, for you will not delight in sacrifice, referring there to the physical sacrifices, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings, but the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. That true spiritual worship that is acceptable before God comes from a heart that has been made new by the Spirit. It is broken over its sin against God, crying out to God for mercy and for forgiveness. True spiritual worship is centered on Christ and Him crucified. It is relying on the Spirit of God for help. One theologian said it like this, only those who have been made into the children of God with the habits of spiritual life can worship God. Only those that have been made into the children of God can worship God, and they must do so by the assistance of the Spirit of God. He says this, the spiritual person in the Spirit worships God who is Spirit. <laughs> the spiritual person in the Spirit, worships God, who is Spirit. And therefore, our spirit, our, sorry, our worship is sincere. It's heartfelt. It's humble. It's holy. All with a view to the glory of God. That we could say it like this. True and acceptable worship must be in the Spirit, capital S, empowered and enabled by the Spirit of God, and it must be done with our very spirit, lowercase s, engaging our very heart and our very soul. 
And the reason that's important for us to consider this morning is because of what happens when we're not worshiping in our spirit. What happens when we become hypocrites and lie to ourselves and others? Um, The post-Reformation theologian von Maastricht talks about the spirituality of God and how it confronts and rebukes all forms of religious hypocrisy and false piety. How we can honor God with our lips, but our hearts could still be far from Him. He says this, The spirituality of God marks out all those who worship God, who is spirit, without their spirit. Those who draw near to God with their lips, but are as far as possible from Him in their spirit. Who approach holy things with their feet, but without their spirit. Who pray to God with their tongues, but not in spirit and in understanding. Who give offerings and other good things with their hands, but without their spirit who are content to offer to God their external things, having preserved their interior and internal things for themselves, for the world, and for their own pleasures. Or as Jesus said in the Gospel of Matthew, these people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And so the spirituality of our worship confronts us. (laughs) It confronts our very state when we come before God in worship. And if we're honest, we do not always worship God in spirit and in truth. How often do we come to worship simply going through the motions, singing the songs, praying the prayers, hearing the word, hearing the word preached, but our hearts and our spirits are disengaged, distracted, and maybe even disinterested, right? Kids around us screaming. Maybe you didn't get a lot of good sleep last night. Maybe you didn't get your coffee this morning. There's so many things that cause our minds to wander, and we are so prone to go through the motions of worship externally, but not internally. And so Scripture would call us to worship in spirit and in truth with our body and with our soul, with our very being. To summarize Charnock a little bit, he says spiritual worship does not eliminate the body, right? We still have to get up. We still have to get ready for worship. We have to come to worship. And the work of the Holy Spirit in true and spiritual worship is focusing our minds and our hearts on the person and work of Christ. Each and every Lord's Day, we come and we gather as God's people to corporately focus our eyes on God. And in fact, God in His grace has given us a whole day to set aside for rest and for worship, to set aside our earthly endeavors and worship Him in spirit and in truth and fellowship with God's people. And in our confession on uh, chapter 22, it talks about the ways that we are to keep the Lord's day holy is twofold. And it's very interesting the way it says it. It says that 
that we are to keep this, the Lord's day holy by a due preparing of our hearts and by ordering our worldly affairs beforehand, right? That we are to first prepare our hearts to come before the Lord in worship. Emily and I, we try to pray with our kids on Saturday, Lord, would you prepare our hearts for worship tomorrow? Would you prepare our very spirits to come before the Lord in worship? But it also says to order our worldly affairs, <laughs> to get everything in order before we come to worship, that our minds can be at rest, that our hearts can be at rest, that we can prepare and order our worldly affairs so that on the Lord's day we can truly rest and worship in spirit and in truth. But the final thing we need to see this morning, there's, there's lots of points of application that we can make about the spirituality of God, right? We could talk about the second commandment and idolatry, how Christ and God cannot be pictured, how God cannot be represented by images because He is spirit. We could talk about the uses of images and worship and the history of all that, but I think the most important thing we need to see this morning is we need to have a vision of glory, a vision of heaven, what some refer to as the beatific vision. Because the truth is, many of us this morning are discouraged in our life. We are downtrodden and weighed down by the cares and concerns of this world. We're so tempted to fix our eyes and focus on our earthly circumstances, the physical things around us. We're so tempted to focus on these external things, wanting, like Moses, to see this vision and glory of God in this life. And even in our closest and clearest visions of God, this side of heaven, we are still seen in a mirror dimly, right? We do not see fully. We see partially. Our, our view of God is marred by our sin. Our physical bodies even fail us. Our flesh is frail and weak. And in our mortal bodies that have been corrupted by sin, we cannot see God and live. But we have in Scripture, brothers and sisters, the blessed hope and the precious and very great promise of what many refer to as the beatific vision, the blessed, glorious vision of the glory of God in the new heavens and the new earth. Our confession says it like this, that in glory we will behold the face of God in light, seeing and beholding God as He is in His glory and in His splendor. And you might say to me, Kendall, I thought you said we couldn't see God. I thought you said that He was invisible, that His essence cannot be comprehended. But listen to what John says in 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. Beloved, you are God's children now, and what we will be has not appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him because we shall see Him as He is. That this is the promise, brothers and sisters, of the beatific vision. Seeing God as He is. Beholding the invisible God who is Spirit. What does Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see 
God. (laughs) That it is those who are most poor in spirit, who see the weight and the guilt of their sin, who know their weakness and frailty most intimately and are most broken in their spirit that have the great promise of one day seeing God. Now in this life with the eyes of faith, looking to Christ and worshiping Him in spirit and truth, but then and on the last day in glory and in our resurrection bodies, face to face. Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, For now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Why? Because in glory, our faith will be turned to sight. Our hope will be turned to delight. And love will never end. (laughs) The love that God has for us and the love that we have for Him will never end. It will never cease. It will abide. And in glory, we will see and behold our great God who has created us, who sustains us, who has redeemed us by the work of Christ and will consummate and bring all things to their final end. And so we can say with Peter, though we have not seen Him, we love Him. Though you do not now see him, see him, you believe in him, and you rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. May we rejoice, brothers and sisters, in the blessed hope, in the hope of the glory of God. Let's pray this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you and praise you for who you are. That even though we cannot see you, you have revealed yourself to us in your word, in your works, and most fully in the person and work of the Lord Jesus Christ. You have spoken to us in these last days. We don't have to search after new revelation or new visions of God. Rather, we can behold you with the eyes of faith. We can see heaven itself with, as Pilgrim's Progress says, the telescope of faith, that thing which is able to give us a vision of heaven and of your glory. And even though we see now in a mere dimly, we have the promise that we will then see face to face. And we pray, Lord, that as we, we behold your coming, as we long for your coming, Lord, that you would give us these, this hope, this great blessed hope that is imperishable and undefiled and unfading and is kept in heaven for us. We long for these things. We pray that you would um, give us a vision for them and we know that we have them in Christ. And so we ask, Lord, by your Spirit that you would strengthen us, that you would help us to see and understand these things and take hold of them. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.